Ain't all buds and charts in the lava dross. You know what the first rule of flying is? Well, I suppose you do, since you already know what I'm about to say. I do. But I like to hear you say it. Love. You can learn all the math in the verse. If you take a boat in the air that you don't love, she'll shake you off just as sure as a turn in the world. Love keeps her in the air when she ought to fall down. Tells you she's hurting for she canes. Makes her home. Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I am your host, Bob Barrow. I want to thank you for joining me for episode five. It's it's a small number, you know, but it's one of those little mark your milestone kind of moments. As I've gotten older, I've found that you know, you don't really celebrate birthdays like big, you know, throw a big event and expect people to actually show up unless it's like a five or a zero, you know, like 30, 35, 40, you know, no one really cares. Hey guys, it's my birthday party this weekend. Oh, cool. How old are you? 32. Get the fuck out of here. Like, what are you doing? 32 business. Like, you know, you've got an hour of my time, but no episode five, kind of fun, kind of exciting. I'm, I'm feeling ready for this one feeling jacked and ready to go. I have a, uh, a disgustingly huge amount of notes. I think I uh, this is the most overboard I've ever gone in trying to prepare, but it's the first double bill. So I wanted to be I wanted to be concise and ready to go. You know, I'm used to just when it was a frame apart or 14 months apart, you know, we I had set a goal for myself that I wasn't going to overnote. So I'd keep it casual and and not get too too scripted or strict or anything. But having learned through the last four episodes of doing this by myself, I gotta be a little more strict and a little more scripted. But considering the scripting's my first love, I guess it makes sense that I would that I would be a little more a little more prepared. So I'm not reading a script. It's not like you've called up a a call center and it's like, thank you for coming to the Steal My Name podcast for insight into the Simpsons movie. Press one. You have pressed two, or I guess it would be fair to say the fingers you have used to press the, the keypad are too fat. <laughs> Please mash the keypad for operator assistance. But no, this one should be fun. I've got my, my giant cup of tea ready to go in my color-changing Slytherin cup, because of course it's Slytherin. So let's get down to brass tacks here. Let's get down to business. So for episode five, I'm approaching, as I said last week, my first double bill. So we're going to be talking about two movies today for the price of one. So, but... And it's going to revolve around a theme this time. Isn't that exciting? I know. How could he possibly ever handle something like this? The scope, the sprawl, the only two synonyms. I'm losing my perspicacity. Ah, see, those Simpsons jokes are hopefully going to be flying fast and furious, provided I can summon them up at the right moment. Usually it has happened organically. But this week I'm talking about... TV shows that have made the leap from the small screen to the big screen, specifically in the case of the Simpsons movie and Joss Whedon's Serenity. Now, usually when it comes to TV to film or film to TV, it usually happens in reverse. Now, the history of television is just littered with shows that have been adapted from films. So uh, this is a short list. Keep in mind, okay? There's absolutely no way I could list off all of them. So just off, these are just off the top of my head. This is the one part where I did actually no research whatsoever. So we have Friday the Thirteenth, the series, Freddy's Nightmares, Nightmare on Elm Street series, Lethal Weapon, Beetlejuice, Real Ghostbusters. Fuck, even Clerk 
got a live action pilot. Clerks got a live action pilot. So on top of the Clerks cartoon. So it's it's everywhere. But the list of TV shows that ended up with a big screen incarnation, that's a lot smaller. I guess the most famous example would probably be Star Trek. You know, the show was canceled, but the popularity that it had in syndication led to it being brought back in the form of movies. So we had the Star Trek The Motion Picture up to Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Those movies led into Star Trek The Next Generation, which in the, that show in itself led to four big screen movies. I guess other examples would be X-Files had two movies, Sex and the City had two movies, Downton Abbey, South Park, Veronica Mars. There's certain things I wouldn't include in that list. For example, SNL sketches that got adapted to films. I think that's a different animal. I also wouldn't put the Muppets into something like that, even though it famously started out as a TV show and then went to the big screen even though technically it started out as commercials and sketches before the show, so it's always been this weird amorphous thing. But the movies themselves didn't really, in terms of the Muppet movies, didn't preserve the show, the format of the show in any way. It was just the characters going on to capers. I guess you could say other than like the new Muppet movie that Jason Siegel did, because that preserved kind of the let's put on a show attitude of the mo- of the TV show and it was very much indebted to the original show. Now, I'm not also I'm also not including old TV shows that are brought back to the screen years later in uh, with a new cast. So things like 21 Jump Street, The A-Team, Miami Vice, from the 90s boom, we had Little Rascals, Dennis the Menace, Brady Bunch, Adams Family, Lost in Space, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The 90s was littered with that. It was a big it was a big thing back then. And those those are done really to take advantage of brand recognition of nostalgia. Not that there aren't great movies in there. The first Adams family movie is a classic. Dennis the menace still holds up really well, but not really what we're talking today. So how I'm breaking this down, how I'm going to be looking at it today is what I think are the two primary reasons why you would bring a show from the small screen to the big screen. And that's one The story that the creators want to tell is just too big to be contained in in a single episode of a show. You just can't do it in the format that they have available to them. Or the show was canceled prematurely and fan demand was so strong that it was brought back, put up on the big screen to help resolve the story that the fans have been demanding. That's what's happened, or that's what happened with the Simpsons movie and Serenity, respectively. So we're going to start with the big yellow elephant in the room, The Simpsons. So The Simpsons movie, directed by David Silverman, came out in 2007. Now, what the fuck can I even really say about The Simpsons at this point? You know, it's it's such a fucking cultural juggernaut. It's firmly rooted in our day-to-day lives, in the zeitgeist, in a way that I don't think any other media property has really achieved. Maybe Star Wars, Star Trek to a point, but I think The Simpsons is is bigger. It goes deeper, at least for for my generation. The the amount of times that Simpsons will come up in a day for me or with my friends, the amount of times we've joked about having to get a Simpsons swear jar. So every time you drop a Simpsons reference, you have to throw some money in. It's, it's not hyperbole when I say once a day, 
probably more like four or five times a day. That's for a lot of reasons. Primarily, the show was always on. There was a probably a four or five year period when I was a kid where, no joke, we could watch The Simpsons three times a day. So this is pre-streaming, pre-DVDs. If I'm getting my times right, we could watch The Simpsons at 4, 4.30, and 5.30 across three different channels it would be on. You never knew what episode you were going to get, so it was a crapshoot. So you're always just kind of watching them out of order. But that gave us a chance to, at least people from my generation, to study the show, to live with it. Because sometimes we'd get pissed off that, you know, the episode at 4 o'clock and 5.30 might be the same episode. But you still watched it anyway. So that led to us, so many of us, seeing these episodes hundreds of times over the course of our lifetime. And it's only gotten worse with DVD and streaming, now that The Simpsons is on Disney Plus, I know for a lot, there's a lot of people out there that The Simpsons, now that The Mandalorian's ended its season, The Simpsons is their primary reason for keeping Disney Plus. If you've somehow managed to live under a rock for the last 30 years and don't know anything about The Simpsons, I will give you some Snapple facts about the show to bring you up to speed. And some of these you might just not know because it's had quite a colorful history. So created by Matt Groening, Groening, the show started life as a series of shorts for the Tracy Ullman show before it moved to Fox as a half-hour sitcom on December 17th, 1989. Since December 17th, 1989... It has broadcast, I believe this number is up to date, 673 episodes. And that's made it the both the longest-running American sitcom and the longest-running scripted primetime TV series in terms of seasons and episodes aired. And again, because I don't know how you couldn't know this, but the show focuses on the Simpson family, Marge, Homer, Bart, Lisa, and Maggie, and the colorful characters that inhabit Springfield. I feel like an idiot just having to say that. I cannot remember a time in my life where someone has actually asked me, what's The Simpsons about? It's I, I've never met anyone that hasn't seen at least an episode of The Simpsons. I'm sure there's people out there, people around the world that don't have access to television, or even people that haven't watched like I can't even say haven't watched it in 20 years, because you've still seen it. It's it's mythology at this point. There are people that know people know more about The Simpsons than I think any other mythological story, whether it's the Greek people know more about The Simpsons than they know about what's going on in their own families or in their own country or their own governments. It's it's sick, hilarious, and insane all at once. But we're not here to talk about the show, we're here to talk about the movie. So IMDB synopsis for the Simpsons movie. After Homer deliberately pollutes the town's water supply, Springfield is encased in a gigantic dome by the EPA. EPA! EPA! And the family are declared fugitives. Not bad. Concise. Reductive. But concise. In terms of a movie, there had been talk of The Simpsons doing something on the big screen for as long as, almost as long as the show has been on the air, since the early days. But what kind of story do you tell? What really warrants making that leap from the small screen to the big screen? You know, what what's going to get people up off the couch where they can watch the show 
and get them out to the theaters where they have to pay more money and deal with other people while they watch this. Homer even mocks the idea right at the start of the film. He says, I can't believe we're paying to see something that we get on TV for free. You know, which is a nice way to kind of acknowledge the inherent silliness of the whole thing. Even the characters are mock- are having a, a joke with it. But it also acknowledges the risk inherent in doing something like this. Can they justify it? Can they make it feel like more than just a two or three part episode of the show? You know, something that's happened in the past with something like Star Trek Insurrection. The movie was fine, but it just felt like a good, a solid two-parter. You know, The Simpsons hasn't done a lot of two-part episodes. I think most famously they did the Who Shot Mr. Burns. And while it's a classic episode, there's no debate there. It's one of the great cliffhangers from my childhood, from one end of one season to the start of the other. You don't really want the movie to be just that again. Thankfully, they did a lot of things right on this movie. They, the big thing, the, the major thing here is they didn't rush it. You know, they could have easily slapped something together and shoved it into theaters when the show was at its peak. But they didn't. They took their time with this. They waited. You know, the movie came out between season 18 and 19 of the show. That is, that's long after the popular, the major popularity of The Simpsons had waned. I think there was something like 158 separate drafts I read. No, I didn't read those personally, but I read that they did something like 158 different drafts of the movie before they settled on the eventual script that still evolved and changed and became the Simpsons movie. So the second big thing that they did that really made this movie special was to seek the input from almost every major writer from what you would call, I guess, the golden age of the Simpsons. So for argument's sake, let's say that's between seasons from season three through 11 or 12. So that's when the real classic, I'm not talking about like season six and seven, which I think most people would argue is probably the best. That's itchy and scratchy land, radioactive man, that kind of stuff. I'm pretty sure that of all of those, the major writers that were involved in those seasons and all those classic episodes, the only two that didn't come back to consult or write in some kind of way were Conan O'Brien and Brad Bird. I think Conan famously said about it, he's like, I've been interviewing Lindsay Lohans for the last 20 years. What the hell would I know about The Simpsons anymore? Even though Conan wrote what Matt Groening considers his favorite episode with uh, Monorail or Marge versus the Monorail, I think is that one. You know, uh, I call the big one Bitey. <laughs> Classic. The third thing, and I think the biggest success that they, the smartest thing that they did here was come up with a story that wouldn't fit into a single episode of the show. And they did that by focusing on scale, but not just in terms of the size of the film, the physical scope of it, but the scale of the drama between the characters, the the actual emotions that are at stake here. So I'll start with the, the scale, the size of the film itself. 
Now, despite how big it gets, and it does get quite big, it does get quite broad, they do something really smart right after the hop, and that's the grounded in something that we're familiar with. And that's the character sitting and watching Itchy and Scratchy. That brings us back into the universe, and then that leads us into the action. It's something we're, we're calm and familiar with. You know, everybody loves Itchy and Scratchy, except, fun fact, Fox, they hated Itchy and Scratchy and demanded that Matt Groening and his team stop putting it in the show. So their response to that was to make the Itchy and Scratchy Land episode, which I think a lot of fans agree is, if not the best episode, it's easily in the top five. So to help with the scale, the animation moved into HD for the first time. And this is something that the show eventually followed a few seasons later. And that allows the character designs to be much more detailed. Springfield, for the first time, takes on a three-dimensional reality. You know, even though it's a city we're familiar with, at this point, everyone knows Springfield, despite the fact that the geography has been very fluid, you know, buildings and stuff, for the most part, are where we need them to be. You know, there's not major, you know, like they never make a point of saying that, you know, the Simpsons house, Evergreen Terrace has, you know, doesn't have Moe's or Krusty's or anything, or sorry, the Quickie Mart or anything there, but the geography's always been fluid. But here we get to see the city in more detail for the first time. There's shots where they actually, like when Bart's skateboarding through town, where they actually drop down to street level and follow him in on a 3D perspective for the first time. So that's really fun. And we also get to see more characters presented on screen at one time than we've ever got before. You know, we get crowd shots all the time on The Simpsons, whether they're sitting in an auditorium or they're sitting in church. And we can see lots of characters that we know there, but for the most part, they're always static. Even in shots where we think they're moving, generally the animators just make them some of them shift a little bit from side to side. So it gives the the impression of movement in a in a quick wide shot, even though nothing's actually happening. The the torch mob scene when the town shows up to uh, to lynch Homer is that's a perfect example. We're getting hundreds of individual characters from the show on screen, each of them moving fully animated for the first time. That awesome shot where the camera zips through the crowd. And we see all these familiar characters. Everyone that we know for the most part, know and love from the history of The Simpsons is there. And they're all moving. They're all acting the way they'd act, speaking the way they'd speak. It's it's not static. And that makes the film feel very much alive. It makes it feel bigger by nature. Episodic TV, by its nature, is a very restrictive medium in a lot of ways, not only visually, but thematically. You can only do so much in 20 minutes or 22 minutes, half hour, but including commercials. It usually boils down to about 22 minutes. You can only do so much in that little window of time and still hold some kind of semblance of a plot together. With the movie, with its longer running time, we can move between these multiple locations inside and outside of Springfield, and nothing feels rushed or truncated. It feels like a movie. We get to spend time in these locations, and we get to spend time moving between locations. 
You know, the, the perfect, a great example of this is, is at the very end. After we've gone through all this action, Homer has to come in to save the day when he rides up the side of the dome. Because it's a movie, that's allowed to play out for maximum effect. You know, that end scene is, what, six, seven minutes all said and done? That's half an episode right there of the show. But this way, we're letting it breathe. You know, and because it's the big screen, we can have Marge say lines like, someone throw the goddamn Bob. It was so refreshing to hear goddamn come out of her mouth. You know, as well as Bart's awkward and, I guess we could kind of say, out of place little nude scene for some reason they showed that there maybe it was to prove the simpsons had genitals i don't know it's it's weird but beyond that it's getting more time that wonderful runtime that a movie presents you with we get to see all these things and we get to live with them enjoy them and then move on with all this you know I guess you could see all this chaos and destruction that we get to see and all the fun rampant action that happens in Springfield. But this time also lets us focus on the family drama that's happening. And that's really what's at the heart of the film. Because despite all the wackiness and the destruction and the multiple locations and the craziness, there was a real effort made here, and it shows, to focus the the central drama on the family themselves and how this conflict impacts each other, you know, moving it back more towards the early seasons of the show when it was, despite its, its funniness and its irreverence, it was a family focused sitcom. And the two major conflicts in terms of character drama here are between Barton Homer and Homer and Marge. And that makes perfect sense. Despite the fact that it is an ensemble show, there really are two main characters. And you could almost say, as the show moved on, one main character. Homer is the driving force for a lot of things on the show, and he's the driving force here in the film. And they accomplish this by returning him to his somewhat darker roots, the darker roots of the character. Because as we all know, as the show progressed over its early seasons and into and right up until now, Homer softened in a big way. He's he's always loved his family. That's that's never changed. But in the golden era, the classic era of the show, and especially in the early seasons, his selfishness had more of an edge to it. And its impact, his behavior impacted his family, I would say, a little harder. You know, he was the embodiment of all the worst, worst characteristics of TV dads throughout history. So it made sense that if you're taking all of these negative traits from all these disparate shows, they would bubble up harder than they would on any one of those individual shows. But again, he was softened as it went on. So it's nice to see that return to kind of that earlier Homer because it allows, it creates more of an impetus to drive this thematic action. And you combine that with the fact that we're getting to spend longer than 20 minutes with the characters. We get to see how his behavior impacts the family, how cruel he gets, he can be to Bart and to those around him, but especially to Bart. We can explore how his neglect 
would take a toll on Bart and how he would naturally start to look towards other men in his life as surrogate father figures, specifically how he reaches out to Ned in this film. And unlike the sh- if this was an episode of the show and Bart had have turned to Ned for something, it would have been more out of a gimmick. You know, he would have been trying to finagle his way into a family trip or trick Rodden Todd out of a toy or something, or just generally trying to fuck with their, their day-to-day. But here, he's reaching out for genuine male affection, a real supportive male role model. In his life. And that's something that would have been completely wasted in a single episode of the show. It wouldn't have had the same impact. It's it's something that seems obvious that would eventually have to happen with Bart's character if they were trying to stay true to the character's roots. But it's really nice to see that they waited till they had the appropriate venue to let this story breathe the way that it needs to, to have its desired effect. Now, the other major drama here is between Homer and Marge, and that's nothing new. The show is famous for them constantly butting heads in one way or the other. Homer does something stupid, Marge reacts. Every now and then, Marge will do something a little foolish or out of character, and Homer will have to react. You know, when Marge becomes has her gambling addiction. That's a famous example of Marge kind of leading the shenanigans in that episode. Marge, while being a great character, she's the classic enabler wife on TV. You know, like Homer is the best and worst qualities of all the TV dads. Marge is the best and worst, has all the best and worst qualities of all these TV moms that have come before her. But how they play it here, just like the conflict between Bart and Homer, because we have more time to see Marge and Homer deal with this situation, there's a sense this time in this presentation of The Simpsons that there could be some genuine, real consequences. In order to make this leap, like we've talked about from the small screen to the big screen, and especially with Marge, she would have to be pushed farther in terms of thematic and story-wise than she's ever been pushed on the show. She'd have to be pushed farther, and in turn, she'd have to push back harder on Homer than we've ever seen her do before. And Julie Kavner's performance as Marge has always been great. She's always funny. She's so dry and wonderful, that gravelly voice. But here she gets to reach so much farther with the character than she ever has before. And her character is so wonderfully nuanced and her performance is so wonderfully nuanced this time because In reality, if we're taking a story and blowing it up and playing for some real stakes, there has to be a line that Marge would come up against where she would be forced to say, as a mother, enough is enough. You know, she'd have to put, you know, won't someone please think of the children? She would get there. She'd have to, where she has to put the needs and the well-being of her family before the needs of her bumbly husband. And she hits that line in this film. 
the the speech that she records over their wedding video, which is so out of character for Marge. She would never go that far. You know, she might kick Homer out for a few days, you know, and he'd come back with some flowers and she'd always take him back in. But here it feels she's hit a real line. His behavior has gone so far. He's endangering through his selfishness, not just their well-being, but the lives of their friends and family back in Springfield. And that's a really interesting way to push this. And I think the only way it can be successful on the big screen is to push these dramatic stakes this far. And to see Marge make this hard call, put other people ahead of her, uh, ahead of her marriage because that's usually what it's come down to. Not so much the family, but the marriage itself. And for her to make that hard call, gain that agency for herself, and say, no, it's over. This is it. And force Homer to have to earn his family back in a bigger way than he's really gone through before. You know, he has to show that he can learn from this situation and be prepared to make genuine sacrifice for the family, not just a couple of jokes, a sad montage walk through Springfield, real consequences, real sacrifice. Sure, he fucks it up right up until the last possible minute, but taking everything he's learned, he does eventually come through. You know, we even, that leads to a great wrap up where we even get to see Marge back on the handlebars of the bike with Homer and they're riding off into the sunset which echoes that great scene when Homer dries out in the early seasons and they are riding on the bike singing Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. And the show just ends on that note. And I don't know if there's a more perfectly romantic, lovable moment in television than we got with those animated characters in that show. Every, like that, just that moment alone makes the movie worthwhile. It makes it worth it that they went this big, that they did this thing. But it's not all just like, I know I've just went super serious, hard analysis on the Simpsons movie that I'm sure some people have done, but it's like, Jesus Christ, Bob, we came here for some yucks and some laughs and maybe to hear you make some dick and fart jokes. Now you're getting all heavy about the serious, the underlying thematics of the Simpsons movie. Well, yeah, I got thoughts too up in Monoggins. I can be smart. I'm going to drink my tea with my pinky up. Here, this is how it goes. Ah, cold tea. Makes it worth it. So beyond this, the family drama, the scale and everything, as we hearken back to the central plot of the film of Homer polluting the lake, they have a really hard environmental message that they're pushing through this film. And like so many things on the show has proven to be prophetic or proven to be prophetic because it's 2020 and, you know, Australia is on fire. The oceans are full of plastic and we're going to get another absolutely brutal year of climate change and shifting and huge problems. So this is 2007. Simpsons were out there trying to say it and tell people in a nice kind of fun way that this is what's going on, but like so many other things, way ahead of the curve. And don't think that it's all just doom and gloom in this serious heavy drama, because what one of the things The Simpsons has always excelled at, at its best, is 
getting this great family drama and interaction happening, but layering it in jokes and levity and lightness. And that's one of the nice things about the movie, because there's a lot of criticism, and I think there is a fair amount of it that is justified, that The Simpsons isn't as funny as it used to be. Uh, I, I can agree with a lot of that. It doesn't hit as hard as it used to. I don't think it could, carrying on as long as it's done. That initial core group of writers has changed. I think it, it's lightning in a bottle that got The Simpsons where it was. And I think you can only maintain that energy and that spark for so long. It's still good and worth watching. You know, there's still the characters that you love. It's just not as maybe focused as it used to be. But anyway, that's not what I'm talking about. The The film itself is genuinely funny. There are a lot of great laugh out loud moments. And you do feel like you're watching something from the earlier seasons of the show. And we get lots of fun. Every, most characters in the movie get at least, or in the show, get a line or two. And we get some great moments that we wouldn't have seen in the show because they would have had to deal with them too much. Just to name off a few of my favorites, I love when Martin smacks the shit out of the bullies. That is a hilarious moment when Ned turns to his son and goes, I wish you didn't have the devil's curly hair. (laughs) When Lisa just punches Bart right in the face is so great. The dare contest at the start, Homer saying, or Marge saying, throw the goddamn bomb. Lisa's love story is adorable and Yeardley Smith's performance with her is great. And we get these tiny little, they seem like little one-off moments that might be disposable, but I don't think we'd get them on the show. And there's two that I absolutely love and they're small. First being when Ned makes the hot chocolate for Bart and he scurries out of the tree and takes a sip of it and it's dead quiet. And you just hear him say, Oh my God. It just, Nancy Cartwright's delivery is so pitch perfect there. And then when Lisa is with her, her beau, Colin, and she starts giggling and falls down to the ground, and you just hear <laughs> these little snickers coming out of her. It's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. You know, the cameos are funny. Green Day playing on the barge and then sinking. Because, of course, they were involved here because it was during the American Idiot political phase. The best cameo is Tom Hanks. You know, America's lost its credibility, so they're boring some of mine. Mr. Hanks, can you tussle my hair? And he shakes, tussles the kid hair, and fairy dust comes off. It's fucking brilliant, because it's Tom Hanks, and he's brilliant. Having Albert Brooks come back as the head of the EPA, you know, he most famously played Frank Scorpio, or Hank Scorpio, on the show when they moved to, uh, for Homer to take the new job. You know, sir, you've gone mad with power. Of course I've gone mad with power. You ever try going mad without power? Stupid. No one listens to you. He's just hilarious. And just having that voice back just brings us back to those early classic episodes of The Simpsons. What's in the future? I know the show's been extended for season 31 and 32. It's been it's been renewed. Uh, honestly, I think it would be probably a good idea for them to stop. You know, we've lost cast members. You know, famously in the early seasons, we lost Phil Hartman. I think we could probably call that the close to the golden age. 
because I think we lost Troy McClure, you know, the characters that he did, Lionel Hutz, and then just when he'd kind of pop up randomly. But I think that's kind of a good marker for that age of the show. Famously, we lost Marcia Wallace, who does Miss Krabappel. That was an utterly tragic loss. I felt so bad for Ned. <laughs> that was the first thing I thought of was, no, Ned, he lost another wife. You know, they've this pushback they've had on a poo, which I understand the pushback. It's it's a shame because a poo is actually one of the most moral characters on the show. So it's a shame that it's it is gra- unfortunately grounded in a different time and just doesn't play as well nowadays. And and rightly it shouldn't. So Hank Azaria said that he won't voice the character any longer. I think it's probably time to to wrap it up. I was I was reading an interview with I think Al Jean, one of the writer uh, showrunners and writers, and they asked him if you could end it any way you wanted, how would you end it? And the ending he pitched was just a a regular episode, maybe a little more heartfelt, but a regular episode, and the episode would end with the family getting ready to go to a recital, and they would get in the car, drive to the school, sit down in the audience for the recital, and the curtain comes up, and it's the recital they're watching in the very first episode of The Simpsons, all the way back in season one. So to close the show in a loop like that. So then it just circles forever. I think that would be great. That'd be a great way. Personally, I think they should wrap it up, but if they're still having fun making it and doing it and people are still watching, hey, keep going. It might not be what it was to us, but The Simpsons right now is still a lot of people's favorite show. Young kids are figure are finding it out from the new show, the new episodes. And they showed they can come back strong with something like the movie. And even after the movie, the first couple seasons right after that were pretty strong too. There were some great episodes in there. So, you know, I think it's everyone's personal opinion. It would be odd to live in a world without The Simpsons, new Simpsons being on TV. You know, it premiered in 1989... I was born in 1984. So as long as I've been making memories, active memories, The Simpsons has been on TV. So it would be a strange world. So now that we've talked about a show that needed a bigger canvas to tell the story, let's flip it to the other type that I mentioned, which is shows that were canceled, but then brought back due to overwhelming fan demand. And that brings us to Joss Whedon's 2005 film, Serenity. Now, there are few writer-director content creators out there that are as revered as Joss Whedon. His fan base is fucking hardcore. That's with a capital H, hardcore. You don't even have to take into account what he did with the Avengers. If he had never, ever touched the Marvel properties he would still be an absolute genre legend when it comes to TV, starting with Buffy and Angel and the other shows that he'd been involved with in Dollhouse. But for our, for what we're talking about here today, it's Firefly. Now, the show itself premiered on Fox. It's kind of a, it's a Fox-heavy episode right now. Premiered on Fox in 2002, and they ended up airing 11 of the 14 episodes that were produced. Now, that's mainly because from the outset, 
Fox decided for whatever reason, they were just going to fuck with this show. They were constantly bumping it from one time slot to another, putting it up against bigger shows and making it basically impossible for fans, people that were enjoying the show to follow it or even to know when the hell it was on. They were airing episodes out of order. They were making them do weird voiceovers to catch people up to speed because they were always bumping it around. And unfortunately, because it couldn't build the fan base that it rightly deserved, the show was canceled. After the cancellation, the fan base, Whedon's fan base, mobilized hard for this show. The Firefly fans are known as browncoats, and they are, again, like I said, a hardcore bunch of people. And they were hugely outspoken about having the show continued. They ran fundraisers, they took out ads in variety, letter writing campaigns. And this started this groundswell. And the show did end up finding new life on DVD. The DVD sales of the series were incredibly successful. Print runs were sold out. And that success is what led Universal to step in and pick up the show to make a movie. So, synopsis time. The crew of the ship Serenity try to evade an assassin sent to recapture one of their members who is telepathic. Sure. Okay, whatever. Again, just like most synopsis is to the, you know, brass tacks point, but incredibly reductive. But anyway, doesn't matter. So just like with the Simpsons movie here, they didn't just strive to increase the action of the show with with its space Western setting. It would have provided plenty of opportunities just to make a big, fun space action adventure. And they could have got away with that. But what Whedon does, as he's so famous for doing in anything he touches, is everything that he does is focused on character. There's some great action in this movie, but none of it's just for kicks. All of it is motivated by the character's actions and has consequences to their ongoing development as characters. So, like I said, with the two types of reasons for bringing a show to the big screen here it's we're prematurely canceled so we want to answer some questions left over from the show we want some type of resolution in whatever form we can get and the most famous i would say the biggest question left over from the show is what exactly did the alliance do to river and why What is it that they did that makes her so dangerous? And just how far are they willing to go to get her back? You know, we'd seen some glimpses of what the Alliance was capable of and what she was capable of on the show, but really nothing on this level. So because we're, you know, with the Simpsons, they don't have to deal with any setup. Everyone knows the Simpsons coming into the movie, but with Serenity, not a lot of people had seen Firefly. It it had a good following, but you have to deal with bringing the audience into the movie and getting them up to speed as quickly as possible. But you don't want to do that in a way that's going to annoy the audience, the established audience or alienate the new audience. So it's a really tricky, delicate balance that Whedon has to strike right off the bat. And he does it 
incredibly. And it's through this opening sequence, he establishes instantly how evil and duplicitous the Alliance is and how evil the agents who work for the Alliance are. It shows their power and the reach of these people and just how willing they are to kill people and deceive others to accomplish their goals. And he does this in an incredible way where the opening actually starts with a very run-of-the-mill prologue where he's explaining the universe to us, Earth that was, we overpopulated and destroyed it, so we set out into, found another another solar system and colonized, terraformed, all that stuff. But then that turns into a lesson that River is being taught as a child, which then actually turns out to be a dream that she had. And that turns into this whole rescue sequence of her actually turns into a recording that the operative is watching. Absolutely brilliant and devilish because that establishes scale. This is how dynamic and talented Joss Whedon is right off the bat. He's not just going to do a prologue and then jump to our heroes. We're He's coming into this knowing he may never get to go to the big screen again, and he's going to hit this one as hard as he possibly can. So we've established all these heavy stakes. The villain is evil, motivated, and ready to go. And then we cut to our heroes, and their ship is falling apart. Such a great dichotomy of characters. And once we get to our heroes... Again, we go through a reintroduction, which is another hugely audacious introduction where Joss moves through the whole ship. We meet everybody. We get a taste of who they are, their character dynamics, and he does it all in one big long shot to establish the characters themselves, but also the character of the ship, which is, you could say, its own character on the show. And it lets us know that this is... Despite the fact that it's not the show, it's still the Firefly we remember. It's still the characters we remember. Everything's just bigger and and more ambitious. From there, by doing all this, we start to get this sense that things are a little more desperate. You know, like I said, this increase in stakes. Things aren't as jaunty on the show or in the movie as they were on the show. As I said, as I keep coming back to this issue of stakes, that they've been heightened. We're dealing with, because we've gone to the big screen, we have, and we're expanding into darker territory, we're putting this crew, the crew of Serenity, up against an enemy that they've only really briefly tussled with in the past. And the 14 episodes of the show, they don't all deal with the conflict with the Alliance. We're They've kind of skirted the edge of this. But here they now have to hit this overwhelming force head on. Okay? And this naturally leads the story into a darker direction. But Whedon doesn't just make it grim for grimness sake, which he could have done. It's like, oh, it's a big screen version, so it has to be darker and hipper and more gritty and real. You know, a great example, the Lost in Space movie from the 90s. It's a fun little silly movie, but if you hold that up next to the TV show, 
Oh my god, like it doesn't even compare. It's so grim and so dark because it's the 90s and everything has to be serious and shitty. But no, that movie is, is quite silly and fun. But he gets away with this grimness because the world that the show established, it showed hints that there was this bigger threat, this bigger darkness to the world. Hints of the cruelty that the Alliance is capable of. We've seen glimpses of the darkness inside Mal that the war left behind. Mal, Nathan Fillion, the captain of the show. I'm not given a lot of background information here, I know, but I'm, I'm hoping that by listening to this, it means you've obviously seen the movie or you'll watch it after we've talked. So forgive me if I'm not giving too many character descriptions. Not really kind of the vibe I'm going for here. More of a loose discussion. But that darkness that was left inside of Mal, we really get to see it fully loosed here. We get to see a complete new side of him, but it's not just brought out to show how cool and violent and butt-kicky he can be. It's perfectly in line with the character we already know and love because he lets it out to protect the people he loves. And that's his crew, his family. And don't get me wrong, it does get dark. Things do get grim. I was really not expecting Whedon to start killing characters, but he went there. You know, after the death of Shepard Book is so brutal and heartfelt, it creates a feeling that any of them could be next. If they're going to kill one of the main characters, not bring back a tertiary character from the show and then kill them, no, we're going for the main cast now. Anyone could be next. But it's not just killing characters for the sake of we he didn't know what to do next, so he just starts killing people. And I'm looking at you, Game of Thrones. You, you, you did bad, and you should feel bad. Here, by killing someone like Book, he takes away Mal's moral compass. Because that's what Shepard Book has always been. He's been kind of this... He's the Gandalf, you could almost say, of the crew. He provides guidance and a sense of not control leadership, but a leadership that Mal can look to when he's alone, when he's feeling hopeless. So by removing that here, Mal has to dig into the darker side of himself to save everybody. Absolutely brutal. And because this has happened, because they're so in so over their head, there's an, there were moments where I'm like, is anybody going to get out of this? Is he going to Rogue One everybody before, you know, years before Rogue One came out? And it's not just the evil alliance that he brings back here to answer some questions about and their relationship with River. The other major villain from the show were the Reavers, and they make a great return here. They were a terrifying villain on the show, but by having this big screen moment, Whedon can take the time to dig deeper into not just what they're capable of as bad guys, but who they are and where they come from and why they're doing what they do. In a TV show setting, it's fun to just keep it loose and give litter little hints in. And if the show had have continued, this would have come out over the course of the series. But here, because he has to get it in so quickly, I think it actually it impacts harder in its way. And he manages to tie it 
all together perfectly. These horrible, violent characters that we're so happy to see killed, and when our crew gets escapes their clutches and shoots a bunch of them and blows up their ship, we're like, yeah, fuck those guys, and their skin-eating and their weirdness and their very Clive Barker-esque mutilation of people. But here we find out, after all of that violence and battle, we have to completely reassess our view on them because we find out that these are actually victims. They're a product of the Alliance meddling in people's lives, trying to build, trying to make people better. And throughout history, there's so many examples of overly powerful governments just not being able to resist the temptation to cross those dark lines and put people in danger with just the goal of making the world a better place based on how they see it, not how it actually is. The Tuskegee experiments, the human experimentation during the Holocaust, Unit 731 in Japan during World War II, the MK Ultra program, it goes on and on and on. How willing we are as, as a species that when we get some power and power over others and we're loosed from this sense of a everyday morality, how quickly we'll go to the we're capable of going to those horrible places. And it's a brilliant stroke in with Whedon here, what he did to take away the facelessness of these villains and give them a voice, even though it's, it's horrific and brutal. And these people are beyond hope and saving. And there's some wonderful action sequences and we're cheering as they're being put down, but there's still a sense of sadness to the whole thing. Despite the fact that Whedon has gone full-on horror show with them here. You know, on the show, they're creepy, and there were some really great creepy elements, but here it's a complete fucking horror movie. When they finally get to Miranda, to the planet that they're going to, and you watch, we watch the, the secure, the log, the video log that the officer has recorded, it's genuinely creepy. When they bust in and you hear these screams, and you can hear her being ripped apart and eaten out of frame, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. The flight through Reaver space, when they hear the recordings of this, it sounds like hell. It sounds like an actual living hell that these people are being caught up in. And it's just, it's horrific. It's an excellent use of established characters. And with so many great characters from the show, it would have been easy just, just to focus on that to bring back some characters that we already know and not worry about introducing anybody new. But Joss Whedon being Joss Whedon, he's not going to rest on his laurels. He's going to push it. And we get the big new characters we get are Mr. Universe, who kind of acts as our, you know, he's a bit of a MacGuffin machine, and the operative, played by, I'm going to say this wrong, Chiwete Etiafor. I'm sorry, I know it's wrong. He is a, a tricky name. But they're new, and especially with the operative, is so extreme. But what's great is none of it feels out of place. It feels like these characters are, are organic to the universe that we know. Despite the fact that we've left the small screen and come to the big screen, these characters are bigger, but they still feel organic to the universe. Because the show... Unfortunately, while it was short-lived, they managed to do so much world-building and mythology-building within those 14 episodes that 
he had such a great base to come in and bounce off of to help give the fans a satisfying resolution. Unlike, you know, as an example, you know, a counter to that, unlike something, say, like Rise of Skywalker, which I previously previously discussed, feel free to go back and check episode one for that. That movie's trying to come in and follow a broken narrative and has to spend time reestablishing characters, rebuilding its its world, and then it tries desperately to have a plot that's that's satisfactory. Here, the transition between Firefly to Serenity, it's seamless. Really. All that's changed is the budget and the size of the film. He's managed to keep the heart and soul of all of these characters perfectly intact and bring them to the big screen and give us that satisfying, if not the resolution, a resolution that we feel good about. You feel you've gone on this adventure with them and it is a rollicking adventure through this film. And it feels like we've learned new things about the characters, but they haven't completely jumped the shark on us. They haven't completely changed in a way where they're now unrecognizable. An argument like that could be made about something like the, the Star Trek Next Generation movies, where because they pushed it so far into kind of action mode, you start to lose a sense of their TV show versions of the characters, where I think it's a fair argument to say that movie Picard was almost a different character than TV show Picard. He lost that that elegance and that diplomacy and became much more focused on action and adventure instead of intelligence and thematics. And that's wonderfully not what happens here. Unfortunately, though, that by moving from TV to the big screen, there are some side effects. Like on The Simpsons, because Bart and Homer are the main characters, on the TV show, it's an ensemble as well. But your main characters are Mal, uh, Nathan Fillion, and River Tam, Summer Glau. So they're obviously going to be the major focus of the film here. They have to be the main characters. But that does mean in this hour and a half format that other characters are going to get sort of pushed to the side. And that, that sucks. Mainly it happens with Shepard Book. He's only in two scenes in the whole movie. But also you could say Nora is pushed to the side. She doesn't even come in until I think the 20 minute or 30 minute mark, maybe longer. And also you could say wash Alan Tudyk's character is, is pushed a little bit off to the side. These are, they're rich characters. They're great fun characters, especially wash. Everything out of his mouth is absolutely brilliant. And it's a shame we don't get more screen time with them because we might never get to see them again. Two of them specifically we'll never get to see again. But the fact that we got one more adventure, you know, it's it's one of those times where, yes, it's not everything we want it to be, but thankfully we have something like Serenity where we can have some kind of closure, you know, where I guess I could bring it back to, to Wheel of Time. You know, it always famously ended with, you know, their neither beginnings nor endings to the wheel of time. But a memory of light ended that same way where it said, this is not the ending as there are no beginnings and never will endings and never will be any endings to the wheel of time. But this is an ending. 
And that's what's great about Serenity, is we do get an ending. Because the show just kind of stopped. The last episode of the show is, is wonderfully heartfelt. It, it is a great episode. It still makes me tear up whenever I watch it. But here we get some good closure to the characters. We get to see everybody have one last rollicking adventure. We get questions answered that weren't answered on the show. And we get to see some healing that's happened. You know, with River, if she's not perfectly well, she's definitely on the mend for the first time. Mal has physically gone through hell in this movie as well as emotionally, and he's come out the other side better for it, learning to not push people away so hard because he's afraid of losing them. He's learned that sometimes you just have to fight harder to keep hold of the people that you love and keep them safe. So great action, but great character work. And I think that's what's so central to both of these films Despite the fact that they came to the big screen for very different reasons and they fought, you know, Simpsons 637 and counting episodes, Firefly at 14. But they preserve why we love the shows in the first place when they went from the small screen to the big screen. And that's a rare thing. These movies don't happen often. And it's even rare that they managed to preserve the magic that made us fall in love with them in the first place. So it's absolutely wonderful that they do it here. Future of, of Serenity, of the Firefly franchise. It's, I'm sure it's something that Joss Whedon's probably tired of being asked at this point. I know that the show, the story has continued in comic book form. There's been various Firefly comics, Serenity comics, books that give more information about Shepard's book, Shepard Book's background, I've read any of them. I'm sure they're good. They're supervised by Whedon, so it's what he considers canon, what he would consider the next seasons of the show, which is great fun. Um, I'd love for them to do another movie. Of fucking course I'd love for them to do it. You know, Joss Whedon showed us with the his two Avengers movies that he's an absolute master at this, and it's a shame that he hasn't done more. I'm sure the Avengers burnout has kind of kept him away from it. But I would love if he could apply all that money and power to pressure, let's say, Disney, as they own Fox now, to getting everybody back together, fitting into their schedules, and giving us another another romp. And it doesn't even have to... I don't need a $200 million Firefly movie. Serenity costs $39 million to make, which is insane. When you think about how great the effects are and the scope of the film and how it never stops. And he did that for peanuts, comparatively speaking, to what a big giant action sci-fi movie should cost. So I would love for them to do it again. At the same time, the show managed to have be so perfect because it never got a chance to jump the shark. You know, we never got a chance to see a bad Firefly episode. Every single one was great. Even with something like Buffy, which has such a ravenous fan base, there are some bad episodes of that show. There's some bad seasons of that show. But Firefly gets to remain perfect. It's this perfect little gem that can never be sullied 
or chipped in any way. And when you put it up there on its pedestal on the shelf next to Serenity, which is so wonderful, it's a perfect little specimen that we can take down and look at and other people can draw inspiration from and creativity, but it stays perfect. So I'm conflicted. Of course, I'd love more, but I don't know if we should risk the potential damage that it could do to the franchise. Because there's always going to be people that'll say, oh, it was so perfect, and then you ruined it. You know, look how desperately everybody wanted new Star Wars, and now everybody's just fucking pissed that we have new Star Wars. So I think in this fan climate, it's probably better just to leave it alone, because no matter what he does... Man, the internet is going to get a... You're just going to hear, you know, 10 million buttholes pucker in anger and suddenly cry out. So, But that brings us to the close of the the double bill discussion because I don't want this to go on for seven or eight hours, even though I could. So now that the movies are out of the way, let's talk about the other trip to the stars, Star Trek. So the rewatch continues with episode five, Captive Pursuit. This aired January 31st, 1993. Synopsis. For the first time, an alien comes from the other side of the wormhole. He has ship trouble and seems very reluctant to accept any help. Chief O'Brien quickly finds out he has a secret. So, this episode is fun for a lot of reasons. One, the wormhole hasn't really been dealt with that much. It's been there. It's been kind of discussed in the background. But since they went in in the first episode... They haven't really come back to it yet. They've been really digging into the characters themselves. And this is the first time that we get a glimpse of what the civilizations might be like on the other side of the wormhole. Because this is the other side of the galaxy that they're reaching into. So far beyond any reach of the Federation or the, or the Alpha Quadrant. So this is the first time we get to see an alien from that, basically another world, a completely foreign side of the galaxy. And the other great part here is that this is an O'Brien episode. And I love O'Brien episodes because it's continuing his trend of just being the everyday working guy. When he meets Tosk, the alien that comes through the wormhole, This is a member of a brand new species they've never encountered before, coming through the wormhole for the first time from tens of thousands of light years away, completely unknown region of space. So what does O'Brien do? He just treats him like any other person he's run into while he's working. Just like somebody that their mechanic brought the car into the shop. Hey, how are you? You got kids? You got kids? Where'd you get those shoes? Good shoes. Do you want a cup of coffee? I'm going to have coffee. Like that. That's O'Brien. He's just always looking out for the little guy because he knows what it feels like to be a little guy. And it's that will continue throughout the show. It's one of the underlying pillars of O'Brien's personality, and they never let that go. And it's what makes him so lovable but so relatable. Because even as other characters evolve and change and become more powerful, less powerful, move into new roles. O'Brien is always this anchor for us as the audience where he, he grows and he learns and he has great relationships with characters, but he's still always just the guy with his toolbox out there doing, doing the work every day. Always wonderful when it's O'Brien episode. 
So this alien that comes through the wormhole as one of the first big new species that we've introduced, because up to this point, we've really, we've met other, the other aliens and on next generation. We, we've met Ferengi, we've met Bajorans, we've met Trills in, a, in I think, a two-parter on Next Generation. Humans, everybody, you know, other than Odo, Tosk is the first kind of alien of the week, for lack of a better word, that we're going to meet. And their entire culture is based around this ceremonial hunt that they do. Tosks are genetically engineered to be the perfect prey. And they're revered in their culture. They train their whole lives to do this. And they're worshipped. And then they go off on this hunt and they are hunted for however long it takes. And then they're killed with honor, as they say. It's obviously the idea of hunting a sentient being. Hunting anything, really, is out of my wheelhouse. But hunting a sentient, walking, talking being like this is definitely barbaric. And that's something that the Federation bumps into on this. Because they're like, well, this is fucking horrible. But the character itself, he manages to have such a dignity about it. And I think that all comes down to the actor that's in this suit. Because he's buried under... a. Full suit, head to toe, hands, face, everything, contact lenses in, not a single inch of him is showing. You know, there's heavy makeup on characters on Trek isn't uncommon, but you can see their their hands or pieces of their cheeks or their eyes. Here, he's locked in this alligator suit, basically, is what Tosk looks like. And it could have come off so silly, but the actor brings such a genuine dignity and sense of humanity to Tosk and pushes this through this makeup that very quickly we take him as a, as a real character. He feels organic and natural, and this doesn't always happen. Sometimes there's makeups that either through lack of time or weird design come off silly. Sometimes the actors don't know how to work it because acting through prosthetics is a completely different job than just doing your normal, you know, stand and deliver your lines. But here, I I should have found out this actor's name because he's just wonderful. And his relationship with O'Brien is innocent and fun and but tense because O'Brien identifies with this guy and sees how wrong this is and ends up siding with him to help him escape. You know, it's just further proof that O'Brien, while he loves his job, while he loves the Federation, has served it in war and peace and will do whatever he needs to do, he will always land on the side of the little guy and what is moral. Because doing what is moral isn't always doesn't always mean what's doing right considered right in the moment. You know, he ignores Cisco. He takes off his combat. He attacks a an alien species. He does all these things, but he does it for the right reasons. Typical O'Brien. Just kicking ass. Now, there's an obvious influence with Predator here, the idea of an alien species hunting another species for sport. But they do a great job of flipping it here, where the primary character we're focused on is the is the hunted, not the hunter, even though I guess that is technically the plot of Predator. Now, this idea would be revisited on Voyager, and they take it right 
about three steps over the line of plagiarism with the uh, Herogen, even though they're great on Voyager. Uh, Tony Todd plays the lead Herogen, and whenever he shows up, he's wonderful. But it is it is the predator right down to the fact that they're like boiling bones and making trophies. Like it's pretty bad how they do it on Voyager. But here it's handled really well. An issue we addressed last week could, or maybe it was the week before, whatever. We've addressed this issue before. Could this be done on another episode or another series of Star Trek? That's the big question we're gonna. I'm going to be asking a lot during the first two seasons here during our rewatch. Yes and no. I, I think they crew of the Enterprise or the crew of Voyager could have easily bumped into somebody like this and had this moral debate that they go through. I think with if it was Next Generation. Obviously, you know, all these guys, they have to take in the prime directive, not interfering with other cultures. But I think Picard probably, they would have worked that storyline into some into more of a diplomatic solution. But again, I could also see somebody like Worf doing the O'Brien role here and saying, no, he's a warrior. He should have a warrior's death. So I think you could do this episode on or could have done this episode on next generation or on Voyager, but I don't think it takes anything away from it because it fits perfectly into deep space nine because it raises complex questions of morality and questions that aren't easily answered. And it lives in that wonderful gray zone of moral right and wrong that DS nine traffics in. So Great episode. We haven't had a dud in the bunch yet, so I'm sure it's coming. I'm just waiting for that carry on home gang or carry on home game episode because ooh, that one's tough. But no, good fun. So to end, we come to the book. So because we're talking about TV shows and movies this week, I thought we'd talk about a book written by somebody on TV about being on TV. So I read I'm Talking As Fast As I Can by Lauren Graham from 2017. Now, I'm sure if you don't know who Lauren Graham is, she's Lorelai from Gilmore Girls. Probably the best way. She was in Bad Santa. She was on Parenthood. So if you don't know her, Google her. I mean, who hasn't seen at least one episode of Gilmore Girls, even if you don't like it? I happen to love it. Now, this book was an easy breezy read. I think I sat down and read it in about two and a half hours. Just I got up to pee a couple times and get some chips. But you just I just blasted through it in one sitting. It's very easy to get through. And that's not a slight against the book in any way. It traces her roots as an actress from acting in high school to schlepping it in New York and stock theater and all the way up to her arrival at Gilmore Girls and then subsequent success on Parenthood and then returning to Gilmore Girls for the the four-parter on Netflix. But when I say it's an easy read, one of the nice things that she does here is, unlike a lot of other books, you could say it's autobiographical, but it's more kind of essay style. There's no grim revelations. There's no dark secrets that come to life here. And that's kind of refreshing. Like, yes, Lauren Graham, like thousands of other actors, had to pay their dues and she had to struggle while she was doing that. And I'm sure there were many dark nights of the soul during that time. But that's not what she chooses to focus on. And that's great. 
because she makes the whole thing feel kind of hopeful, like any of us could do it. And she has such a jaunty, fun writing style where she's not writing like Lorelai. She's not trying to write like Gilmore Girls, but it reads like the person who played Lorelai, you'd hope they would sound, I guess, if that makes any sense. I think it does. Now, the for me, the most, the fun parts of the book, the parts I really enjoyed is when she was talking about Gilmore Girls. That's a show that I love. There's parts of it that I don't like. I don't like the seventh season, and neither do the creators of the show, and even Lauren Graham felt that they kind of lost the track. There's certain characters on the show I don't like. I don't like Logan. There's stuff that Jess does that bugs the shit out of me. I don't like how Rory behaves when she's at Yale. But going through and have reading some chapters where we're getting kind of this day in the life aspect of when she was on set and her memories of sitting down and watching the show and how she felt being on the show. That's great. And it all wraps up with her discussing its return. So the the four movies, I guess you could say, the four hour and a half episodes of the show they did, A Year in the Life, on Netflix, which is excellent. Another thing like Serenity, it answered and helped wrap up a lot of questions. I can't recommend that series enough. The show itself, and especially the, the Netflix four-parter. But no, excellent, fun little read. Uh, makes me want to read her first book. She wrote a, uh, a fictional novel uh, that I, I intend to track down because she's got a great, fun voice that's very relatable without being cheap. It doesn't feel like it was just something she whipped off in one draft and just kind of pushed out there. There's a sense of genuine care with the story she's telling and how she's telling it which is very refreshing. It was a great way to spend a a Saturday afternoon. So check it out. Further recommendations. I guess book isn't the last. Recommendations is the last. So as we're talking about TV to movies, I guess I should stay in that vein. So my two recommendations would be, because I realized I didn't bring it up at the start when I was doing my list of movies that made the jump, and I feel a little silly, but an obvious recommendation, South Park, Bigger, Longer, Uncut. A fun movie. They did that when they thought they were going to get canceled, so they did the movie. It's grim in an odd way, because South Park's always been a little grim. It's a full-on musical. The songs are hilarious. The characters are preserved really well. That's great. And then also I would say Star Trek First Contact or Star Trek Wrath of Khan. So you get two for the price of one there. Both of them deal with villains that were established on the show. With Wrath of Khan, obviously, it's Khan and his various Wrathening that he deals with with Kirk. And then on in First Contact is dealing with the Borg. Now, first, Wrath of Khan is fucking undisputed champion. Like, put it on. It's, the, it's a Star Trek movie you show to people that don't think they don't like Star Trek. Wrath of Khan, unfuckable, great movie. And Ricardo Montalban's abs are just incredible in that, with the, the rich Corinthian leather. That's a joke for people, I think, that are about over 55 right now, but I'm still telling it at 35. Old Man Barrow strikes again. But with Star Trek First Contact, it's there's problems. There's a lot of problems in the movie because the characters don't behave like their counterparts on the TV show. 
But the movie's still so much fun. The new Borg stuff is great, and it would go on to play a big role in Voyager and kind of change how that show went. Fun movie. Probably of the four Next Generation movies, it's the, definitely the best. One of the whole lot, uh, directed by Commander Riker, Jonathan Frakes. Great movie. Check it out. For books, keeping on theme because I'm just a, I'm a theme machine today, my recommendation is True Indie by Don Coscarelli. If you know me, it is no secret that I love the Phantasm franchise. Phantasm full review will be the 10th episode of this show coming up in a few weeks. So that'll be fun. His autobiography is released in 2018 and it traces his roots from a young, from a young child getting into film all the way up to, to right now. Touches on making the Phantasm movies touches on his relationship that I didn't know he had with Quentin Tarantino to working, directing videos for Dio to his other films, John dies at the end, Bubba Hotep, survival quest, Beastmaster, all that stuff. It's a wonderful read. Coscarelli is such a low key blue collar guy. And the book reads that way. It just feels like he's talking to you. There's, there's no overt melodrama. It, nothing gets grim. It's just, it's one of those rare books about a filmmaker that I'm incredibly familiar with where I kept going, what? Oh, I didn't know that because Coscarelli, because Coscarelli's movies aren't insanely popular outside of cult horror. There hasn't been, other than Phantasm, a huge amount done on the guy, books written about him, documentaries, etc. It's always really focused on phantasm. So, despite my best efforts as a hardcore fan, there was so much about this guy that I didn't know, and I had such a blast reading this book. I think it's another book that I think I read in two days. Like I tried to space it out, but you just zip through it so wonderfully. It's got that same easy relatability of something like if chins could kill confessions of a b-movie actor bruce campbell's book it's not funny like that it's not designed to be funny it feels more like one of the best interviews you've ever heard that's what the book reads like and i want him to write more all the time every day and i want him to make more movies because he has such a limited filmography because he's so fiercely independent, but everything he's made has been great. Even the bad ones are great. So check that out. True Indie by Don Coscarelli. So that brings us to our actual end of episode five. I hope you guys enjoyed our fir my first double bill. I, I hope I didn't take it all a little too seriously, but you know what? I was, it was fun to take something like The Simpsons movie seriously. That uh, It's a movie that I love, so it's nice to get to to dig into the more thematic angles. And I love Serenity, and I love any chance I can get to talk about it. So, we're done with five, moving on to six. What comes next week? For episode six, I'm going to be looking at... We're going back to one movie, just so I don't... Uh, so I don't tire you guys out too quick, because as this year progresses, it's going to be a lot more double bills and triple bills and series and stuff. So I'm building up to it slowly, taking my, my toes in this week, stick my toes in the water, and then next week, dry them out for a little bit before hopping back in. So next week, I'm going to be talking about Kevin Smith's Red State. And you want to talk about a hard left turn in someone's filmography. Holy fucking shit, dude. That movie does not pull any punches and is a complete 
180 from anything that he had been doing up to that point and anything he's done since. So great movie. We'll be talking about that next week. So thank you guys very much again for joining me. You can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. If you're having trouble finding the Steal My Name Podcast on iTunes, I'm still trying to get the name sorted out. It is there, but it's not searching properly. So if you want to find me on iTunes, unfortunately, you'll still have to search 14 months apart. But it is there. But again, until I get that sorted, you still find me on SoundCloud. So once again, thank you for joining me. And until next time, remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.